Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Ames. In today's episode, we're going to look at police brutality and racial profiling. Stay tuned. Okay, so in today's episode, we're going to tackle a lot of different things and it might seem a little bit all over the place as we're covering police brutality, racial profiling, stop and frisk, and various other things. So we, of course, have touched on a lot of these issues before in the past, but I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to this, particularly given how much has been in the news recently with the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict and then recent deaths of of people of color uh, due to police violence and brutality. So I, I think a lot of Americans first started understanding police brutality last summer after seeing the video in which for eight minutes and 46 seconds, Derek Chauvin pressed his knee into the neck of George Floyd, who was, of course, an unarmed black man. And this deadly use of force by, well, now former Minneapolis police officer um, Derek Chauvin really reinvigorated a very public debate about police brutality and racism. And we saw that protests spread all over the globe and really the pressure was on police departments and politicians, particularly in the U.S., to really do something, to really step up and say something. And whether it was reforming law enforcement tactics or defunding or uh, abolishing police departments, there was a lot of of talk and a lot of movement. And although researchers are encouraged by the movement for change, some are also concerned that without ample evidence to support new policies, leaders might miss the mark. And many people have been arguing for years about the need for better data on the use of of force by police in the U.S. and, and for rigorous studies that really test interventions such as trainings on how to de-escalate tense interactions or mandating the use of body-worn cameras by by officers. And as these data points and these studies really begin to materialize, and of course we have protests rising as well, a lot of them started back in 2014, right, after the, the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and then we had the death of of, of Eric Garner by chokehold in New York City. As we're starting to see a lot of this information, we're starting to get a better idea of exactly what police brutality is, what it looks like, and what we can kind of do as a society to to make it better. So, if we're talking about the numbers, if we're looking numbers-wise, I did some research on, on this, and I looked at a couple of different studies just to, to get an idea of it. So about 1,000 civilians are killed each year by law enforcement officers in the U.S. And by one estimate, black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police during their lifetime. And in another study, black people who were fatally shot by police seem to be twice as likely as white people to be unarmed. This is according to an article by Campbell Nixon. Uh, It was entitled Public Policy. Mark Hostra, he's an economist at uh, Texas A&M University in College Station. He attempted to kind of decipher the role of race in police force and and looking at police officers. And he compared responses to emergency calls. 
Based on information from more than 2 million 911 calls into U.S. cities, he concluded that white officers dispatched to black neighborhoods fired their guns five times as often as black officers dispatched for similar car calls to the same neighborhoods. And basically, Hofter just wondered whether the factors that contribute to an officer using excessive force might be predicted in a similar way to how the U.S. Major League Baseball teams use sophisticated statistical models to predict whether a player has the potential to be a future all-star. Well, scientists have really tried to identify some predictive factors such as racial bias, something we talked about uh, several episodes ago, uh, or it could be bad temper, insecure masculinity, other individual characteristics, uh, many of which can be identified through simulations already used in, in officer training. Uh, Nick suggested that such screenings could really help with vetting officers before they're recruited and and that's definitely something that I'm sure a lot of police uh, departments do. They really do try to to vet their officers. Uh, but he says that raising the bar for hiring might be impractical because many police departments are already struggling to attract and retain highly quality, qualified candidates. So that's that could be that could be an issue. Similar forecasting models could recognize patterns of bad behavior among officers. Um, there's actually a lot of data from the New York City Police Department that suggests officers who had repeated negative marks in their files were more likely, three times more likely to be exact, to fire their gun as were other officers. So a, a lot of this uh, research has been done in the U.S., but also Places outside of the U- U.S. also have been looking at a lot of these these studies. We have Lawrence Sherman, who is the director of the Cambridge Center for Evidence-Based Policing in, in the U.K., suggests that states have the constitutional power to license or revoke the power of any individual to serve as a police officer. So in looking at the case of George Floyd and the officer that, that shot him, Derek Chauvin, we can can basically know, uh, according to Chauvin's file, that he received 18 complaints against him, even before he put his knee on Floyd's neck. So the fact that a lot of these officers have complaint after complaint, but nothing is done about it, definitely is a red flag. And that, of course, can lead to additional uh, issues in the future. So Officers even who are fired for misconduct, a lot of times are actually rehired. The police officer in Cleveland, Ohio, who fatally shot uh, 12-year-old Tamar Rice in 2014, had actually previously resigned from another police department after it had been deemed uh, unfit for him to, to serve as an officer. But the Cleveland police did not review his personnel file before hiring him. Uh, at least that's according to a New York Times article in 2015. So that's definitely a big issue. Um, and an in investigation of public records from Florida showed that about 3% of that state's police force had previously been fired or they had been resigned. They actually had resigned in lieu of being dismissed. And 
a lot of times the trend is that these officers tended to move to smaller agencies, which served a slightly larger proportion of black residents, but not necessarily a higher uh, crime rate. So there appears to be a lot of issues with these people that could not do their job in other areas and other districts. They were fired or they they resigned. And then they found work um, in a different police department. But of course, you're still going to have a lot of those same issues, um, especially if you have a case like Chauvin, who had 18 complaints uh, against him over the, the past few years. So definitely something to look at. Um, in terms of legislation, um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021 is something that people have been talking about. It's a civil rights and police reform bill that was drafted by Democrats in Congress and also included members of the Congressional Black Caucus as well. And this was something that was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives in February of this year. And essentially, it aims to combat police misconduct, excessive force, and racial bias in policing. So the bill passed the House of Representatives, which is Democratic controlled. Um, mostly it passed on party lines. It was a vote of 220 to 212, but it has not been voted on uh, in the Senate. And of course, advocates, you know, continue to advocate for reform. We also have grassroots movements of as well that are really continuing to work and actually one campaign one movement I did want to talk about in today's episode is the hashtag say their names so whether you saw say their names on social media or just within you know the heart of a protest a lot of people might wonder okay what exactly does this phrase mean and where does it come from so interestingly enough, the campaign around Say Your, say Their Names comes from the African American Policy Forum, which essentially raises awareness about police brutality. And it's actually more than just a hashtag, um, kind of like a lot of times people will say rest in power. Uh, say Their Names is sort of a way to honor the lives and legacies of those who lost their lives at the hands of police violence. This sort of helps to ensure that the stories of these victims are are something that's continued on and that people continue to call for for change and justice. And while say their names could be used for anyone who faces injustice from the police, it is specifically created for members of the black community. Uh, because again, as we know, black people are disproportionately affected by police violence and a lot of them have lost their lives too soon. So by encouraging people all over the world to say and use the names of the deceased, their stories do live on. And oftentimes in the fight for justice, I think the focus is on the cause and, and the progress being made, which of course is important. Um, but say their name really encourages people to remember all of those who died on this journey for change. And these names sparked a movement and, and of course they deserve to be honored and remembered. And um, not just, of course, the men, you know, a lot of times women of color are not featured or talked about when the conversation of police brutality comes into play. But we know from from the past couple of years and instances like Brianna Taylor and Itana Jefferson, we know that a lot of these these women um, also are, are victims as well. And 
In fact, there there was a first in-person vigil in, in memory of Black women and girls was held in May of 2015 in New York City, and, and a lot of people joined from across the country. So definitely the past couple of years, we have seen um, a lot of, a lot of uh, movements really recognize and really talk about the, the names of people who, who were killed. So we have Say Her Name, obviously combined with Say Their Names, really reminds the general public activists and victims' families to keep the names of these individuals alive. And it's a cry of you know outrage. It's a cry of action. Instead of simply fighting for justice, you know, we have to, of course, collectively fight for, for justice and honor of the victims taken too soon. And uh, just as, as a note, if you are interested in learning more about uh, the campaign, uh, about the hashtag, say, say their name, say her name, and sort of the, the work that the African-American Policy Forum does, definitely check out their, their website. It's www.aapf.org slash say her name. So a lot of the initial outcry of police brutality came from racial profiling policies that have really affected people of color at high rates. In the U.S., racial profiling continues to be a prevalent form of discrimination. Police officers across the United States routinely stop Black and Latino men without cause. And ever since September 11th, 2001, racial profiling has been become much more prevalent for Muslims, Arab, and and South Asian communities as well. And equally troubling are local immigration laws that really invite rampant profiling of people of color or or foreigners uh, based on sort of how they look or sound. And for those wondering exactly what is racial and ethnic profiling, it's essentially law enforcement engaging in an ethnic profiling that is they're basing actions on the race or religion or national origin instead of an individual's conduct or objective evidence. So ethnic profiling may be carried out by all ranks of law enforcement. It could be from local units to counterterrorism and it can occur during policy practices like identity checks or border controls, airport security anything like that. And a lot of people say, well, is ethnic profiling legal? How how was that exactly working? Well, police powers to stop and search kind of vary from place to place. But that means that ethnic and racial profiling, which again is, is, is essentially the targeting of specific individuals or groups based on their appearance, constitutes illegal discrimination under US, European, and also international law. Having said this, uh, racial policies and, and racial profilings really became popular during, as I said, after 9-11, um, particularly New York was stop and frisk. And many states have, have adopted policies as well, even though it is not legal. So I guess I, I would first probably just want to talk a little bit about stop and frisk, since I think, I think that's one of the um, more common uh, practices that we see. It's a practice that was employed by the New York Police Department, and it reached its height under the tenure of Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He was the mayor of New York from 2002 to 2013. And it is a policing tactic of temporarily detaining, questioning, and frisking individuals in search of weapons or contraband. 
NYPD used this tactic uh, actually originally under Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He was mayor of New York from 1994 until 2001, but Bloomberg continued and actually ramped it up, and it disproportionately impacted Black and Latino communities. Uh, really faced, you know, accusations and and a lot of it was blatant racial profiling. Um, in in 2011, that was really the height of the program. Over 685,000 people were stopped, with nearly 88% of them found to be innocent. And the NYPD's application of stop and frisk was eventually found to be unconstitutional in 2013 due to a policy of indirect racial profiling. And But that being said, I mean, the practice of stop and frisk has continued across the country in various forms. Um, and this is just according to information I found in a Georgetown University study. Um, but if we actually look at it, it, it didn't even start in New York. The legal president for stop and frisk was actually determined in a 1968 Supreme Court, Supreme Court case titled Terry versus Ohio. And Terry set this national standard that essentially allowed police officers to interrogate and frisk suspicious individuals without probable cause for arrest, providing that the officer can articulate a reasonable basis for the stop and frisk. So the court also held that frisking someone is legally permitted only when the officer has a reason to suspect that the person is armed and or dangerous. So... Again, New York City, stop and frisk uh, really was a big thing uh, with Giuliani and Bloomberg. Um, Giuliani had basically adopted this zero policy, zero tolerance policy for low level offenses in, in hopes of detaining individuals who had committed more serious crimes. And the policy was ca- carried out by a unit within the NYPD called the Street Crimes Unit, SCU. And it was a squad of these so-called elite undercover officers that were sent into high crime sections of the city. And according to the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, the SCU filed 27,063 stop and frisk reports in 1998, which was the greatest number generated by any NYPD unit. The following year, the subjects of all stop and frisk reports registered by the SCU were 65% Black, 20% African, uh, 20% Hispanic, 6% White, and 1% Asian. That is according to the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights. In October of 2000, a federal investigation of SCU basically determined that his officers had engaged in racial profiling. And uh, that was that was a definitely a big, uh, big thing, but that did not stop uh, this from, from con- continuing on for, for several years. And interestingly enough, uh, for people that ha- heard about the 1999 killing of Amadou Diallo, he was a 23-year-old uh, immigrant from Africa. He was shot 41 times and he was actually... Uh, profiled by SCU officers in front of his apartment building. So that definitely was was a big uh, big reason that a lot of people in New York started to become aware of stop and frisk. In April of 2002, uh, after facing accusations of racial bias, the police commissioner at the time, Raymond Kelly, 
announced that the unit's detectives would be redeployed uh, and at an effect closed SCU, but uh, that didn't stop the aggressive policing tactics. And Giuliani's focus on the zero tolerance policy, again, uh, sort of continued over into uh, Bloomberg. And um, according to an NAACP 2014 report, Along with Police Commissioner Kelly, uh, Bloomberg actually increased the quotas of of stop, question, and frisk. Um, he really essentially falsely believed it would help reduce violence in, in targeted high crime neighborhoods. And um, during his tenure as as mayor, millions of these stops were were conducted. But again, the majority of people, eighty eight percent of the people, were found to be to be innocent. And uh, again, within all of that, there is a lot of data that really shows that uh, Black and Latino individuals were disproportionately stopped and frisked and subject to physical force. So. Um, looking at an equal justice initiative, it said uh, based on their, their studies, 83% of the stops involved Black and Latino people, even though those two groups comprise uh, slightly more than half of the city's residents. Um, a prison policy initiative in 2011 said uh, that, again, that Black and Latino people were far more likely to be stopped uh, and physical force was often used. And whether that was firearms or pepper spray or um, pushing subjects against the wall, the car, the ground, etc. And again, this is something that wasn't only in New York City. In fact, Chicago as well uh, had had this sort of similar thing. Um, in August 2015, the ACLU of Illinois released a report that revealed that black people in Chicago were subjected to 72% of all stops, yet they only make up 32% of the city's population. So again, this is something that we see across uh, across cities and in different parts of the U.S. And all in all, I think that years of these policies have shown us that stop and frisk doesn't really work and it's not very effective. Of course, we need to have police and of course we need to to try and limit crime. Uh, certainly in, in big cities, we do sometimes have crime issues, but I think that there are definitely better ways to, to police neighborhoods and to fight crime. So in today's Ask a Black Friend, uh, this was a discussion that I was having with a friend of mine who is living in, in California, in the Bay Area, and we're talking about police brutality, and she's asked me if I thought defunding the police was the best way to go in terms of stopping police brutality. So obviously many issues of police involved violence occur because officers are not properly trained on when and how to use their equipment. And um, definitely a lot of, of issues come up around racial bias and, and that's certainly an issue. But I, I actually think, um, believe it or not, that defunding the police is not really the solution. Uh, I don't think it's the best way to go in terms of um, putting an end or at least reducing police brutality. And and here's why. So defending, defunding the police, rather, it really takes away the resources that are needed to make sure officers are properly trained on things like you know, use of force or de-escalation techniques. 
And police brutality usually occurs when overly aggressive policing tactics are implemented in a very dramatic fashion or an evil intent. But training itself, I think, isn't bad. It's definitely important to have training and and having people who know what to do is, is definitely a good thing. So I think that we don't necessarily need fewer cops. We need fewer bad cops. And lowering police budgets mean fewer police officers on the streets and, and fewer people out and about in communities. And defending, I think defunding the police also places a greater strain on existing officers um, and probably reduces the likelihood that they will quit or they will perform their jobs ineffectively uh, because they're burned out. Um, so I think we need to change how we're using the money and how to train officers. I think it's not a matter of um, just stopping funding. It's a matter of looking at, okay, where is this money going? Is it going to buy fancy new uniforms or is it going to actually invest in diversity training? Is it going to to actually work to get quality officers. I think another thing too that's interesting is, you know, here in 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 Spain, uh being a police officer is a very very good job. It's a, it's considered a very prestigious uh, job in a lot of sense is it's it's hard it's actually hard to become a police officer you have to pass something called the oppos which is is a common thing for actually teachers have to pass it um, anybody that works in sort of a government position they have to to pass it but you need to have a four-year degree you have to pass this very hard exam that many people as I said the oppos uh, is something that people often study for uh, for about a year and then within that you have to do training um, that usually ranges from about 12 to 18 months. So it's actually very rigorous. And I think that's one thing if you look at police over here in Europe, obviously not to say that there are not issues of police brutality, but uh, it's actually a lot harder to be a police officer. Whereas in the US, uh, I think obviously I'm, I'm not an expert, but um, it's definitely easier. You You have people going to a police academy for you know, certainly 16 or so weeks, but there's not always that emphasis on training. There aren't always these these exams and these rigorous things, and there's not a requirement for a four-year um, criminal justice uh, degree. So I think that training and education are definitely a big thing. And I think, well, you know, I'm on the issue too of talking about training. I think that uh, a friend of mine sent me a meme that sort of joked about how maybe some police officers uh, needed teacher training. And, and while it's funny, it's, it's a good point. I mean, as teachers, you know, we're expected to de-escalate situations on on a weekly, if not daily basis. Uh, we are expected to manage students, particularly those of us who teach high school. We're often dealing with students that are are our size or, or, or bigger. And I know for me, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had an incident with a student um, who got in my face and threatened me in a very aggressive manner. Um, this is a student who's about six foot two, um, weighs way more than I do, and was very, very aggressive and very threatening. And of course, I have to de-escalate that situation. I am not carrying a gun. I'm not carrying pepper spray. I'm not doing any of that. So I think that a lot of 
trainings that we as teachers or even uh, social workers, I know they also have to go through a lot of training as well. Uh, I think maybe it could be beneficial for police to sort of figure out how to de-escalate situations uh, where they learn how to to deal with certain things without necessarily shooting someone or a recent example we saw the officer claims that she thought she was grabbing her taser um when she actually grabbed her gun and even in that situation where the 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 guy who who passed away he was sitting in his his car and maybe a taser even if she had grabbed a taser maybe that wasn't the best way to to handle the situation so I think that's part of it. And also using funding to maybe help hire social workers or help hire um, counselors who are also knowledgeable about de-escalating situations. So in some of these cases, when uh, people call the police because their their relative is, is having a nervous breakdown or um, there is something's not right and then the police arrive and they don't know how to handle it and, and people get hurt, someone gets shot or, or worse killed maybe having some type of a a counselor to go along could actually help out. So I think the best solution is not to get rid of the police, it's to help the police and and, and provide uh, resources so that we're hiring really good people and we're also uh, making sure they have the tools to succeed. So I I guess I just want to end this with a quote from Malcolm X. He said, quote, there is no better there there is no better than adversity every defeat every heartbreak every loss contains its own seed its own lesson on how to improve your performance next time end quote i think that this discussion is definitely ongoing there's really no easy answer solution and we have to learn from mistakes and try to do better as as a nation and in closing, I do want to spend uh, at least a, a little bit of time, um, and I would like to dedicate this episode to some of the people of color who have died at the hands of police. And so I would like to read off the names of some of them. Dante Demetrius Wright, killed April 11th, 2021, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. He was shot by a Brooklyn Center police officer. Marvin David Scott III, killed March 14th, 2021 in McKinley, Texas. He was pepper sprayed, uh, restrained with a a spit hood, and then asphyxiated uh, in Texas. Patrick Lynn Warren Sr. killed January 10th, 2021. He was shot by a, a Keelan, Texas police officer. Vincent Vinnie Belmont, January 5th, 2021, shot by a Cleveland police officer in Cleveland, Ohio. Angelo Quinto, December 26th, 2020, in Antioch, California. Knee on, he was killed uh, as a police officer placed a knee on his neck and he was as- asphyxiated. Andre Maurice Hill, December 22nd, 2020, shot by a Columbus police officer in Columbus, Ohio. Casey Christopher Goodson Jr. killed December 4th, 2021, also in Columbus, Ohio, also shot by a police officer. Angelo A.J. Crones, November 13th, 2020, Cocoa, Florida, shot by a member of the Brevard County Sheriff Department. Sincere Pierce, November 13th, 2020, also in Cocoa, Florida, 
shot by a member of the Brevard County Sheriff Department. Marcellus Stinnett, Walking, Illinois, shot by a member of the Walking Police Department. Jonathan Donison Dwayne Pryor, Wolf City, Texas, shot and tasered by a member of the Wolf City Police Department, October 3rd. A lot of these names, again, I could continue. There's names from all over the U.S., from Minnesota to Indiana to Texas to Kentucky. Uh, various people who were shot and killed or restrained, asphyxiated, uh, various things. Um, but again, this is an ongoing conversation, and hopefully in the not-so-distant future, we'll see the names uh, we won't see as many names continue to pile up. We'll, we'll see fewer and fewer deaths and we'll see more uh, justice being served and we'll see more of a conversation, more marching, more protests, more legislation, more training, more everything. So again, thank you so much for listening to Facing Race and I hope to see you next time.